Thank you, Miranda. Appreciate that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Second message in our series through the book of Proverbs entitled Wisdom That Works. That's the title of the series. And we explained that a little bit. It seems like it was three months ago when we started this series. Uh, We have had a lot going on, obviously, in the month of April with the missions conference and the pastor setting that up. Uh, with the message there on faith promise on that Sunday night. Uh, But we're kind of back to it for the next few Sunday nights at at least. Proverbs chapter 1. I hope to, in the next few months, uh, at least until Pastor gets done, uh, gets through uh, Joshua, which is is a few more messages, I want to try to get through chapter 3, or or even 4 of of Proverbs, before uh, I switch to the Sunday morning preaching and Pastor switches back to Sunday night. And then we'll start, uh, Lord willing, um, a study through the book of Habakkuk uh, on Sunday mornings, which would just be about four messages and then another book after that. Um, but Proverbs is something that we're going to be working in and out of, I bet you, for, I would guess, the next five years. That is no exaggeration, because at least five years. And it's not something we're going to get uh, really, really uh, anchored to for a long period of time at once, but it is a book that's written in such a way where we can come to it preach a few chapters, leave it, come back to it, preach a few chapters, leave it, especially when you get to chapter 10, which is the actual literary form that we call Proverbs. That's where the actual Proverbs begins, is in chapter 10, and then you literally preach a whole sermon on one verse. It's, it's, there's that much to, to unpack out of one verse. But until then, we're just really covering the lectures of a father, Solomon, to his son. And the first nine chapters is really the father trying to get his son to buy into wisdom. He's trying to set the stage for, for chapter 10 through chapter 31. And he's trying to tell his son, listen, this is why you need to listen to me from chapter 10 to chapter 31. Wisdom is this valuable, it's this important. And so he's trying to sell wisdom for nine chapters full of lectures. He's trying to get his son to listen. And so we are on the second message in this. And if I titled this message, it would be called this, Two Voices, Two Choices. Two voices, two choices. I want you to consider for a moment before we get into our text, all the choices that you make in a given week. I kind of put them into broad categories, financial choices. Choices in terms of your time, your recreation, your marriage, your children, your career, your spiritual life, the words that you say, the attitude that you have, the responses that you give. Choices in regards to your health, your habits, your entertainment, for students, your schoolwork, and I probably could have thought of several more, but I bet you that every single one of us will at least have to make choices in just about three quarters of those categories right there this week alone, and we'll probably do it without even thinking about it. We make so many choices every day, and certainly every week, and here's the truth. When it comes to our choices, we're just given two options. We can choose wisdom, or we can choose foolishness. So when we're talking about choices financially, we can make the wise choice or the foolish choice, and we've all made both. Talking about choices with our health, we can make the wise choice or the foolish choice. I think it was Elizabeth Knutson that sent me a text today because she knows my addiction to uh, salsa, chips and salsa. And uh, she sent me something like, if you really want to, I forgot what it said, but basically it just proved that I wasn't in control of my eating habits when it came to chips and salsa. If you really want to show how undisciplined I am, 
put chips and salsa at the table in front of me. I can just devour those things. And that's a foolish choice when it comes to health. And, and, and here's what, what you need to realize. Or, or I guess the question of the text, and the text is going to answer this question, is, is how do we ensure that, we're, that we'll choose wisdom more than we'll choose foolishness? I mean, when it, comes to full, when it comes to finances and habits and spiritual life and parenting and other things, how do we ensure that we will make the wise choice? Well, that's where the text comes in because it's going to teach us that the key to making wise choices is listening to wise voices. And the key to avoiding foolish choices is to reject foolish voices. Listen, church, before you make any choice in life, you have to first deal with the competing voices in your life. Then the voice you listen to will determine the choice you make. The section that we're covering tonight, like I said, is the first of what will be 12 lectures from the Father to the Son, from chapters 1 through chapter 9. And in these verses, we're given a contrast between a wise voice and a foolish voice, and then we're shown how each of these voices influence our choices. And the text lays out, uh, very simply, it shows us what the voice of the wise sounds like and why we should listen to it in verses 8 and 9. And then it shows us and describes the voice of the foolish and what it sounds like and why we should reject it in verses 10 through 19. Two voices and two choices. And so let's, let's discover the first voice. And I would put it like this. To make the right choice, you must listen to the wise voice. Let's read verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1 together. My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. So he says wisdom, he uses parents as, as the main means through which to get the son wisdom. And, and, and because he uses the word son, he emphasizes this, that parents are to be the primary teachers of the ways of wisdom in a child's life. That, that implies that it's not the school's job to raise our kids. And the church isn't the primary teacher in your child's life either. In fact, you can read all the way back in Deuteronomy when Moses made it clear through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, that it is actually mom and dad's job to be the primary teachers of the law. And of the word of God. In fact, Moses said, you ought to talk to him and teach him to it wherever you are. Walking down the street, around the dinner table. No matter where you are, you ought to be teaching your son and your daughter the ways of the Bible. Now we know if we're going to do that right, parents, it takes energy. It takes passion. It takes intentionality. But listen to me, it's worth it because the world has a lot of energy. And the world system has a lot of intentionality that they want to try to push onto our children. And they have a lot of passion in trying to raise our kids for us. That means we can't afford to slack off in this area. And I want you to notice that both the voice of the father and mother is mentioned here. They play a different role in parenting, but they both have the same goal, to guide in wisdom. So let's look at the two roles. Let's, let's talk about the voice of the wise father. He says that, that the father's role is to instruct. Instruct. Now I want you to notice something. The mother's direction, look up here, is coupled with the father's. Father and mother. But the father's is mentioned first. 
Now I want you to understand this. That doesn't mean that the father's role is more important than the mother's role. I would almost argue that the mother's role is more important than the father's role if we had to pick. They're so influential in the home. But it's not talking about one's more important than the other. It just indicates that the father is to be the leader in the home. That the father's role is to teach by way of instruction. And when we say instruction today, in our vocabulary, in our English language, we usually mean to teach or to impart knowledge or to show somebody how to do something. But in the Hebrew language, this word is very strong. As we mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 1 several weeks back, it means to correct. It means to discipline. It means to rebuke. Fathers, listen, that means that we need to do some correction. And don't automatically go in your mind to just whooping them. No, we should shepherd their heart before we whip their bum. Write that in the flyleaf of your Bible. When I say correct, I don't mean we just throw them over our lap and wear them out. Though if you read Proverbs and you have an open heart, you'll find that spanking is part of God's plan. But it's not the first resort. We can actually correct verbally through teaching. We can correct if we have a teenager that's wayward or rebellious. You don't have to yell at them. Fathers, you can take them out on maybe a weekend trip, something they enjoy, and do some correction by spending time with them. If you have a daughter, you can take your daughter out on a date or something along those lines and impart instruction and even rebuke in that way. And yes, it does involve spanking if it comes to that. It's a biblical thing. But we have to be willing to do that. And, 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 and I think Solomon also implies this, that the father is to be the main disciplinarian in the home. You're going to see in a second that he didn't give the role of instruction to the mother. That doesn't mean the mother can't instruct by way of discipline or correction. It certainly doesn't mean that. But the mother's to do the majority of the teaching. She's the moral compass. She points them in the right direction. I'm going to be honest, I I kind of weary of dads that sit over there passively Why mom not only has to keep the home, and mom only has to feed the kids, and mom not only has to do the laundry and vacuum the carpet, but she also has to spank. And we're over eating popcorn, watching ESPN, Why mom's doing everything else. Listen, we we can't be passive, men. We don't have to be hateful, shouldn't be hateful. Ever shouldn't, no, should never be hateful. Should never be, be, ha, have a temper or, or a quick fuse or, 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 or some, somehow walk through our house as though we're the dictator of the home. If you do that, men, you're an abuser of Scripture. That, that's not God's, God's point here. It's, it's just the fact that the burden of discipline should fall on the Father. So, men, that, that's how we impart wisdom there, but then we see the voice of the wise mother in that she is to teach the law. Law simply means moral direction. So the mother's role by way of her example, her spirit and her teaching, is to point her children in the right direction. Now I know this is Mother's Day. I wasn't actually planning, I had this written three weeks ago. But but we're preaching this and I think it fits pretty well. I, I really believe this, that even more so than the father, The mother sets the spiritual temperature of the home. I really believe that. And and I believe that that mothers should be very, very mindful of where their example is pointing their children. 
And mothers should be very, very mindful of where their spirit is pointing their children. Very, very mindful of where their tone of voice is pointing their children. You know why? Because mothers have a very intimate relationship with their children at the most developmental stages of their life. They are the compass. They determine the direction of their child's life from a very early stage. And and listen, I'm learning this with our eight-year-old boy. He picks up a lot on what mama does. More is caught than taught in some cases. They pick up on, listen ladies, how you talk to and treat your husband. They pick up on that. They pick up on how you deal with your stress. They pick up on how you handle offenses at work and at church and in your family. They pick up on how you respond to trials and difficulties in your life. They pick up on how you talk about others or to others. They they pick up on how patient or impatient you are. They pick up on how kind or unkind you are. They pick up on your work ethic. They pick up on little things like punctuality or the lack thereof. They pick up on cleanliness or the lack thereof. I'm not meddling and I'm not trying to, to make you feel guilted that you're not perfect because you don't have to be perfect. I just want to point out the obvious that little eyes are watching you. And, and, and if it's up to you to point them in the right direction, I'm just telling you, you'll have teachable moments in which you ought to take advantage of, but they're going to actually catch more from you by, by your example than perhaps learn from your verbal instruction. And so be very, very mindful of that. And like Pastor said, it's really not guaranteed that your child will go in the direction that you point them. But may it be said that you gave them the best chance. Yeah. Notice that Solomon coupled in verse 8 the teaching and instruction of fathers and mothers. You know what that tells me? That we are meant to work together. Are you with me? The father and mother shouldn't be leading in two different directions. I just found that there is actually great power, amazing power in the influence of a father and mother who are working together and in agreement with one another. You want to see the opposite of that? Turn to Genesis 25. Where Rebecca, she loved Jacob and Isaac loved Esau. And we're talking about a home that was apparently centered on God or should have been. We're talking about Isaac, the son of Abraham. Should have been centered on God, but yet the parents were fragmented. They weren't in agreement. They didn't parent uh, in the same direction. And you know the result of that home. Absolute chaos. But hear me tonight, as powerful as the voice of wise parents can be in the life of their children, their influence will only go as far as the child allows it to go. In other words, the child will only grow in their parents' wisdom if they make the choice to listen and receive their parents' wisdom. So let me talk to the kids in here. Teenagers in here. If you have godly parents tonight, you ought to thank the Lord for it. If you don't have godly parents can almost guarantee you that God in His good grace has placed some type of godly influence in your life. Some parental figure in your life, whether that be a teacher, whether that be a coach, whether that be a grandparent, whether that be a a spiritual leader in your life. And listen to me, young people, I know you can get tired of being instructed. 
And it seems sometimes like you're getting it all the time and like you can never get anything right. But let me encourage you with verse number nine for why you should listen to the wisdom of your father and mother. He says, for they, what's they? The instruction of the father and the law of the mother. They shall be an ornament of grace under thy head and chains about thy neck. You know, the ornament of grace is speaking of the victor's wreath. It symbolizes winning. It symbolizes victory. Listen to me, young people. If you really want to win in life, you'll listen to the right people. The necklace symbolizes protection. I love what one commentator said about the necklace. He said, listen closely, it was prominent advertisement to spectators. Like a wedding ring, the best defense against the seductress. So so I wear this wedding ring, not that I have a huge problem with this, because I'm not, you know, great looking guy, not implying that, but, but the ladies in the nursing home love me, so. I was talking to my wife about that today. If you have anybody to worry about, it's 70 and above. I wear this to say I'm off limits. It's not just a vow between us and a vow before God. This is a public symbol that protects me from the seductress. Listen, listen, young people. The law of your father and the law of your mother, it's actually protection in your life. I know you feel like it's binding, like it's making your life miserable, and it's chaining you down and not giving you any liberation. If they'll just get off your back, you'll really win in life. That's actually not true. Even though they're not perfect, check this out, they know more than you do. Not because they're better than you, they're just older, which means they've been down the road farther than you've been. It's that simple. Respect experience. Respect age. Respect wisdom and understand that when they pass it down to you, it's, it's, it's like a protective blanket in your life. I, I really think the overall principle is this. The child that listens and obeys their parents is actually a beautiful thing to behold. It's attractive. It's like a victor's wreath. It's like a beautiful uh, 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 ornament or necklace around the neck. It is something to behold. And adults, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree that you see a child, whether it's a little child or even a grown teenager, and you see how, how that young man treats his mother, and you see how responsible that young lady is and how sweet of a spirit she has, and, and you don't have to tell him three or four times. And, and Isn't it just attractive? Isn't it just a blessing? And and the other side of the coin is true as well. When you see a son or a daughter that is wayward, we shouldn't just go to judging the parents for it. But at the same time, it's just not as beautiful. It's troubling in some ways. So to make the right choices in life, you need to listen to the voice of the wise. But here's the other side of that. To avoid the wrong choice, you must reject the foolish voice. Look at verse 10. Let's study My son, if sinners, there's the fool, if he entice thee, consent thou not. Psalm is saying when you're tempted by the fools, reject their advice. You know what that word consent means? It means to agree. Do you know that before we ever sin, we consent? You understand we agree before we act? That's what Eve did. She consented, she agreed with Satan before she ate of the fruit. That's what David did. He consented before he ever slept with Bathsheba. Listen, the first step to following after the fool is to agree with them. 
Adults, we've got to learn this too. We've got to learn the art of saying no. Young people, you've got to learn how to say no. You've got to. You've got to ask God for the courage to say that two-letter word. Young ladies, you've got to learn to tell boys no. You've got to learn that early. Only people you shouldn't say no to sometimes are your parents. But to your peers, to the foolish peer, learn to say no. And he adds to this in verse 15, look at it. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Watch, refrain thy foot from their path. He goes a step further and he's saying this, don't even experiment with the foolish. Don't even entertain their advice for a moment. Don't take a single step in their direction. I like what Charles Bridges says. He's an awesome commentator on this book. The tender conscience becomes less sensitive by every compliance. Often has ruin followed by not refraining from the first step. The only safety is flight. You remember the story in Genesis 39, which illustrates this perfectly, of Joseph with Potiphar's wife? You read that? He, he had went from a slave to the manager of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's a very powerful man. Potiphar entrusted everything to him. Potiphar's wife was attracted to Joseph's integrity and Joseph's work ethic and Joseph's charisma and Joseph's leadership. And she went in at a point in which he was vulnerable. The Bible says day after day, tried to seduce him to sleep with her. The temptation got so real one day that he literally ran out of his robe to flee temptation. And, and, and that, that illustrates exactly what I feel Charles Bridges is saying. Illustrates what Solomon is trying to tell his son. Sometimes you just have to run. You don't have time to entertain sin. Listen to me, young people. You never have to quit if you refuse to take the first drink. The first drink. Listen, adults, you never have to cover up if you refuse to tell the first lie. Solomon then, after he explains kind of his expectation with the foolish, he then goes on to give a hypothetical situation. And here's why. He wants to show his son just how the sinner's voice will compete for his attention. And he says three things about the foolish voice. He said the foolish will offer excitement. Are you with me? Verse 11. If they, that's the foolish, if they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us look privily for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. So the excitement that the sinner offers in Solomon's story is violence. It's violence. And I would say that's actually still a part of the foolish appeal today. And the sinner's appeal today. Uh, in, in today's vernacular, it would come by way of a gang. Um, gangs make violence look exciting and appealing. They, fighting and vandalism and graffiti and other things. And you can even go onto social media. And it's been a means by which violence has been praised and promoted as a fight goes down at school and kids get out their cell phones and they'll video it then they'll share it to social media and literally you'll get hundreds of thousands of views but because solomon's story is purely hypothetical we have permission to add to it because i understand in here that violence doesn't appeal to some people i understand for some young people a gang isn't even appealing to you 
But drugs might be. Alcohol might be. Premarital sex might be exciting. Pornography might be exciting. Stealing might be exciting to some. The point is simple. The foolish sinner will entice us with something that is exciting to us. That's why James 1, when tells us of how, how, how the devil entices us, says that you are tempted when you are drawn away of your own lust. That word own means idios, where we get the word idiosyncrasies. In other words, the devil is going to entice you with something that is particular to you. Some of you men will never be tempted or enticed, perhaps, with alcohol. But the devil knows you will with something that's on your phone screen. And so he'll attack you that avenue. And some of you ladies, you, you won't be at all tempted to, to, to have an extramarital affair at all, but, but the devil knows you're tempted to handle an offense with bitterness. And so he'll attack you that way. He fishes after us with the bait that he knows we'll bite onto. And the fool does the same thing because the fool is used by Satan to entice us and to tempt us. They offer excitement. But verse 13 teaches us that the fool offers instant gratification. Look, we shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. So the instant gratification that the sinner offers in Solomon's story is easy money. After they violently murder the owner of the house, here's what he says they're going to do. They're going to tell him, we'll easily rob him of, of all his possessions. We'll sell them to the highest bidder and we'll walk away filthy rich in an instant. And listen, the foolish sinner still operates the same way today in our lives. He offers instant gratification. And maybe it might not be easy money for you. But if you're stressed, here's what the fool says, take a drink. You'll be instantly relieved. Smoke a drug, swallow a pill. You'll instantly feel better. Do you need affirmation? Well, the fool has a remedy for that. Take a selfie. Use a filter. Post it online to get likes and comments. You'll instantly feel affirmed and appreciated. Do you want sexual gratification right now without the commitment to wait on marriage? Great, the fool would say, I have all kinds of online offers for free. You never have to commit to a relationship. You can have virtual sex all you want and you never have to watch the same video twice because I have so many videos you'll never get bored. Instant gratification. But the foolish also offer camaraderie. Look at verse 14. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. Listen, church, sin loves company. Sinners recruit because sinners don't sin alone. And here's the problem with that. We are made for company. God made us relational. He made us with, 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 with this like default desire. We are hardwired to want to be accepted, to want to belong. And by the way, we never outgrow that. We get better at it, but we never outgrow that. And the devil plays on that, and the fool plays on that, and the sinner's enticement plays on that. That's why we can be attracted to a voice that's foolish, because it offers a little bit of camaraderie. That is why young people join gangs. It offers them a family, most of which they don't have one of their own. That's actually why many good Christians give their lives to Christ by way of salvation, but can never seem to break away from their old friends. Camaraderie is powerful. 
That's why a single girl will settle for a single guy that doesn't love God and doesn't love her because it makes her feel like at least someone will accept me. That's why negative people will hang out with negative people. And complainers will find complainers. And the, and the person that gossips will hang out with a gossiper because we will even get with a negative group if it means we can fit in in the moment. So Solomon's simply trying to paint this hypothetical picture to his son about the voice of the foolish. And he says in essence, listen to me, boy. It may sound attractive, because it will offer excitement and instant gratification and a sense of camaraderie that is hard to find. But please, son, say no. Please, son, consent thou not. Don't even walk with them. Don't even take a single step in their direction. Listen, Solomon is a wise father that sees farther down the road than his son can. And he's a courageous father that is willing to have a tough talk with his son. Would to God we would have more fathers that would care enough about their son to see farther down the road than a son can see and tell his son, no, don't, hold back, consent thou not. You know what that takes, fathers? It takes us being present enough to be able to identify their temptations. Some fathers go to work, come back, go to work, come back, go to work, come back. And when their son messes up, they're like, oh, I had no idea you were struggling with that. Not present. You know what else it takes? It takes prudence to see farther down. The prudent will, will foresee the danger ahead and hide himself, Solomon says. Solomon was practicing what he preaches. Listen, man, we got to see a step farther than our sons can see and our daughters can see. And if it means that it creates a little bit of tension because we have some confrontation, so be it. If it means we can save them from destruction. You know what else it takes? Courage. Courage to say, I know this is going to upset them. I could say it the best, most palatable way possible, but they're still not going to like it. But I'm going to do it anyway because God tells me to do it. Again, it doesn't mean we've got to pick on our kids. It doesn't mean we've got to nitpick every single little thing that's not even a pattern in their life. It doesn't mean that. It just means, men, that we've got to care enough to have prudence and presence and courage in our sons and daughters' lives. Yeah. You know why I'm passionate about that? Because our church is only as strong as our homes are. Our youth group is only as strong as our mom and dads are. Listen, parents, we got we to get back to strong, biblical, loving, grace-filled, courageous parenting. They are the future of our church. Solomon says, let me tell you some why I'm so passionate. Let me tell you why, why I say, you don't just say no. You don't just disagree with the foolish. You don't even take a step towards him. Let me tell you, it's because I know where it leads. Look at verse 16. For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. And they lay wait for their own blood. They lurk privily for their own lives. <clears throat> Solomon contrasts, watch, the way of sinners and birds. So in trapping a bird, you're probably better off if you conceal the net. You sneak up behind them. You don't throw a net right in front of them. They have the instincts to fly away. You conceal the danger if you want to catch birds. Solomon is saying, watch. 
The sinner has less sense than birds. Verse 15, they're hasty. They're so eager to sin that they fall for a trap that is in plain view. They know better. They've been taught better. They see the danger ahead, but they do it anyway. And as they do it, they get trapped. In one word, Solomon is saying, this is why you don't consent to the voice of the foolish. Self-destruction. They won't destroy you. Son, you'll destroy yourself. And that's true, Proverbs 5.22. Look at this verse. His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself. And now she'll be holding her trapped with the cords of his own sins. And that's illustrated in Judas Iscariot's life in Matthew 27. Look at this. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Then check this out. And they said, what is that to us? Because the fool does, when they get what they want out of you, they don't care. See thou to that? And he cast, hopelessly, cast down the pieces of silver in the temple. By the way, church, this is why we've got to greet the repentant sinner with grace. If we don't, they'll run out of this place and do more harm to themselves. He cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, departed, and went and hanged himself. He listened to the voice of the foolish, thought he was going to get a step ahead, and he self-destructed. We could talk about Samson, couldn't we? Solomon is simply reasoning with his son. Why would you want to listen to, listen to me please, young people especially, and follow after someone who the Bible proves is as stupid as a bird? Why? Why are you doing that, young ladies? Why why are you binding the voice of that foolish boy? By the way, not all boys are foolish. Why would you do that, though? I know he sings beautifully like a bird, but he's probably as stupid as one. God bless his heart. Just be careful. Watch, Solomon's message to his son is very clear. You'll have two choices. The wise choice and the foolish choice. And the choice you make will be determined by the voice you listen to. Don't close your Bible yet because we've got one more verse. 19. So are the ways, so so are the ways of everyone. You see that? Everyone that is greedy of gain, which taketh away the life of the owners thereof. Up to this point, Solomon has been addressing his son. And he closes his lecture with addressing everyone. That's on purpose. Because we might walk away from this message adults thinking that's a good message for them teenagers. Boy, my college student needs to hear that. But Solomon made it a universal application. And he said, everyone listen up. No matter your age or stage of life, if you listen to the foolish more than you listen to the wise, you too will self-destruct. Listen to me, no matter who you are, you still have to make choices every day. And you still have to deal with the competing voices in your life. So here's the question, adults, young people. What voice will you listen to? Here's what Solomon says. If you listen to the voice of the wise, you get a crown and a necklace. If you listen to the voice of the fool, you get a net. 
Which will it be? Victory, protection, and beauty? Or defeat, danger, and destruction? You can't, after we make foolish choices, and then these kind of things happen as a result, you can't say, well, I just didn't think that would happen. You know better now. Proverbs gives us the wisdom to see what will happen as a result of our choices. So be careful who you listen to. Because who you listen to determines the choices you make. Stand to your feet, every head bowed, every eye closed.